I walk up to the witness. I said, and that, your father passed away in 2018. That's right. That's right, sir. I go, the problem I have, Mr. Heil, is that I have the obituary from the Boulder Daily Camera in the coroner's report that showed that this happened and your father passed away a year prior to the explosion. And I slid the paper across the table and there was silence in the room. Welcome to the Tip the Scales podcast, where we discuss running and growing your law firm. I'm Maria Monroy, president and co-founder of LawRank, and this week we are joined by Kurt Sainer. Oh my goodness, Kurt is so fun. Um, we talked about a lot of things. We kind of jumped all over the place, but we talked about being a champion for your clients and how as a lawyer, your job is often to fight for those who can't fight for themselves remembering that responsibility can change how you approach cases both in and out of the courtroom we talked about being authentic and i know that sometimes we hear this word and it's kind of cringe worthy but if you've ever met kurt you know that he is who he is and he is very much authentic and we talked about how it can be easy to feel like you have to step into the role of a quote-unquote lawyer as soon as you get in front of a jury. But when you allow yourself to be a person first and a lawyer second, you can better connect with a jury. We talked about finding the routines that keep you at your best. For example, Kurt uses a combination of cold plunging, breathing techniques, and clean eating to keep himself sharp during trial. And I know that this can be really hard for a lot of lawyers because you guys are obsessing over this trial and not getting much sleep and just kind of, you know, working, working, working. But we talked about how taking care of yourself can help you be on top of your game and get better results for your clients. In fact, ever since Kurt and I talked about cold plunging, because I've done it before, um, I've started using cold exposure almost every single day to help with my anxiety. And I am so happy to report that it's helped so much. I cannot encourage you guys more to like seriously try it, even just cold showers. Seriously, for me, they have been life changing. Maybe it's a placebo effect, but I don't even care. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I know you're very busy. I think, you know, I do feel busy all the time, but everybody's busy. Life is busy. How do you get away from the busyness? I don't know. I like the busyness. Yeah. Do you? I don't. Really? I don't know. I wish things would calm down a little bit, but I feel like if I'm busy, I get more done. So it's kind of, it's kind of a double edged sword like that. I don't like it, but I know I'm the most efficient when there's a lot to do. It makes sense. And you were just, I just watched you do a cold plunge. I did do a cold plunge. Cold yeah. plunge is amazing. Uh, Wim Hof, uh, maybe you know him. Maybe the listeners know him. He's a guru, but don't call him a guru because he doesn't want to be called a guru. But he is a Dutch guy who, very, very sad story, actually. Um, his wife uh, killed herself, kissed their kids goodbye, and jumped out of a hotel window. Um, and he began a quest to find a way to help people with mental health that's not pharmacological there's a way to give us a fuller life a happier life a life that can bring us purpose and he finds that accessing the cold is the key to all of it Um, he recommends cold plunging every day and when you do it you feel alive you feel the blood is flowing this mental clarity comes over you and for me the biggest part and this ties back into being a lawyer is the anxiety dials down 
I mean, there's talking about being busy, you know, part of the business that I don't like is all the anxiety that comes along with it. I've got to write all these legal briefs. I have to get ready for trial. I have to run a law firm. I have to be a good dad, a good husband, a good friend. If I have time for friends, they come last. And it's <laughs> like, it's, it's overwhelming at times. Um, the hardest part for me is getting out of the bed in the beginning of the day. Once I'm going, I'm going. But uh, getting out of bed is the hardest. And if I have this plan, I have my cold plunge ready to go in the morning, that's how we get going. And it's just, it changes everything so much so that if I don't cold plunge, uh, that anxiety creeps up and you can, so there's a marked and noticeable difference. That's crazy. The other part though about Wim Hof, it's not just cold exposure. It's also the, the, the breathing, right? Yeah. It's about- I've done it. Oxygenating your, your cells. And so you get all the acidity out um, and you become what he calls fully alkali. And that's getting, it's like going into- uh, an oxygen chamber, you know, you see that some of these cryo places you yeah. can go in and, and this has the same short term effect. So, and I've fallen back on that lately. I need to get back into it. And then the third prong of Wim Hof and it's three is that then once you've mastered those two things, you get to this ability to control your autonomic nervous system, which is not right. supposed to be conscious. It's supposed to be subconscious. And so that's where I want to get with it. Um, I've been working on it for two years. I think I'm ready to take the next step. Uh, and it's a big part of just how I de-stress as a lawyer, bringing it back to what we're here to talk about today is that it helps me get through um, the regular day. It's really important during trial for me. Have you worked with a Wim Hof instructor? I have not. You know, he's got a great app and great videos. And so it really just lays it out for you. So no, I haven't. See, I've done the opposite. I haven't done the app, but I went to this retreat where they had an instructor um, and that's where I learned about it. And what I find the most fascinating is that when you jump into a cold plunge, if you control your breathing, you will warm up. Like your body will warm itself up. But if you can't control your breathing, that's when you can get really cold. And that's where it can actually be dangerous. Right, right. And hypothermia can set yep. in, all sorts of scary things. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and when, when Wim goes in, he can go in for as long as he wants and he raises his body temperature, you know. All the studies are great. I remember I listened to a podcast, we're on a podcast now. That's how I was introduced to him, and I was just like blown away. And I'm like, I want to try this. And then every little step, we have a big trial coming up. Uh, it's going to be the longest trial I've ever done. It's going to be five weeks long, massive toxic tort case. Wow. And it's got like millions of pages of documents. There must have been, and this is not hyperbole, 60 depositions, if not more. The most expensive case I've ever been a part of. The most terrible damages. People are getting cancer and losing limbs. I mean, it's got everything out of a Hollywood script. It's incredibly sad. Our client's the most injured person I've ever met. Uh, there's other plaintiffs. It's a 12 plaintiff trial. We have other lawyers involved. Uh, a very famous trial lawyer is about to enter his appearance and try it with us on behalf of some other plaintiffs. I mean, it's got everything. And so. We've been thinking long and hard about what we're going to do for our re our staying purposes for like our, our, our residences, and I need a cold plunge for that long. And so we're gonna we're gonna get a house and then bring the barrel. And we're where's this at? It's it's in Lakewood, Colorado. Yeah, which is like it's like suburb of Denver, right at the okay. foot of the foothills. There's a plant there that sterilizes medical equipment, and they use something called ethylene oxide. Um, it's a chemical that is carcinogenic. It's mutagenetic and. That's why they use it, because it sterilizes medical equipment, and it kills all the microbes on that equipment. The problem is, as we've alleged, and others around the country have, is that these plants don't do a very good job of controlling those emissions. And so after they blast the product with the ethylene oxide, it has to go somewhere. And there's ways to control it, but a lot of these plants have allowed, in our opinion, our allegations, too much of it to get out into the environment and infect 
it's not really the right word, but um, you know, dispersant of the community. It's odorless. It's colorless. People will breathe it in, have no idea. And over the course of many years of living close to this plant, playing at parks, going to school, oh my God. they're going to be absorbing this into their bloodstream through their lungs. And the studies have shown that it causes certain kinds of cancers. So I need my cold plunge to get through that trial. Otherwise, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> so what are you going to do? You're going to take one like the one you have here? I think so, yeah. I'm, I think so. Although I have one in my house that I just bought that refrigerates itself. It's got the whole compressor in it. So I might bring that if I can figure out a way to transport it. So yeah, one of the two. But we're going to have some cold plunging on, on site. That's amazing. It is amazing. I yeah. can't think of doing a trial any other way. In fact, it was so funny. When I discovered Wim Hof, I'd already tried a bunch of cases, but... I think I was talking to one of the lawyers at my firm, and she's like, you know, I don't. This case is really hard. I don't know if we're gonna be able to win at trial. You know, the last case was a lot easier. And I was like, yeah, but in the last case, we didn't have Wim Hof. <laughs> All right, now I'm breathing. I'm cold plunging. My clarity is like exponentially higher. I'm way more lethal in the courtroom because that's what can stop you in the courtroom, right? If you get your and I get nervous like everybody else, you let your nerves get the best of you, or you get bogged down and you can't think clearly. And so I have a very strict diet when I go to trial. You know, I'm eating I'm not that different than how I eat usually because I eat really clean anyway. But in trial, it's always salads for lunch. I don't want any carbs, any bread weighing me down because when you see these jurors come back after lunch and they're falling asleep because they just had a big sandwich and some chips. You know, so I eat really clean. I got to have really clean uh, health habits. I need to exercise. And if I can call in this new element of cold plunging and breathing, it's like now I'm just firing on all cylinders all day long. What about which, sleep? Do you get much sleep? I don't get as much sleep as I, I would like to. You I, know, I, knew I, I it's, say that. it's so hard. I mean, there's there's two kinds of trialers out there. There are those that like have a beer after you know after the day of trial and then just go back at it. And there's guys that just keep working until they literally pass out. And I think it's and I'm the latter. You know, sometimes I wish I could just have a beer and chill out, but I won't drink any alcohol for the weeks leading up because I want I need every mental advantage I can get, and I want I, I feel like if I drink alcohol. Four or five days later, I still may be a little slower. Maybe it's just my own psychological thought on it. But um, I won't drink alcohol. I'll eat really clean. I'll exercise. And I will work until I can't keep my eyes open. Usually, I get about five hours of sleep a night. And I'm an eight-hour night person, usually. That's so, what I am. Yeah. Eight to nine. Yeah, eight. I love my sleep. Yeah, yeah. Nine. And I'm a different person when I don't sleep. I was asleep last night at 8.55 p.m. for the seminar. That's, that's great. Because I can't, I, if I have to talk all day, I'm here giving lectures, talking about Cicero and how to give opening statements and doing this. And like, I don't want to be sluggish. I don't want to be tired. So I just, it's got to be, I, I can't afford to lose any, any, any margin of, of efficiency. I got to be hitting on all cylinders. Tell us about some of your verdicts for those listening that don't know who you are. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, my... I've had a couple of nice verdicts, a handful, maybe a couple handful. Um, been very blessed to find some success in the courtroom. Uh, I feel like a lot of the cases we had early on were cases that nobody else wanted because they were hard. You know, we had our first case, our first big verdict um, was this young man from Iraq. He, they're Iraqi immigrants, really sad story. They like fled in the middle of the night, Saddam Hussein's regime. And he was going, he was 25 years old. He was driving 88 miles per hour on a city road that was a 40 mile per hour road. And um, it's all on video. And some guy turns left in front of him. Um, so he's zooping down and some guy turns left in front of the guy in the motorcycle and our guy just smashes right into the back of the SUV. It's like the, the window behind the driver. So that passenger, rear passenger window, his head crashes into it and then the helmet falls into the seat. There's actually someone sitting in that seat. So my guy's head crashes into someone else's head, gives that guy a brain injury. 
my guy's helmet falls off, he falls back into the road and he dies. Um, very tragic story. And the driver just kept driving. Didn't even like come to a full stop. He goes three blocks down the road and he looks at his buddy behind him who was dripping in blood because my guy's head smashed into it. And he looks at his buddy next to him and he looks at the six beer bottles, the little bottle of vodka, the marijuana pipe, and he runs. He runs 17 miles on two broken ribs, watches himself on the news that night, Googles how long alcohol stays in your system with his dad, waits three days, interviews two lawyers, and then turns himself in. And they never charge him with causing the crash because my guy was going 88 miles per hour. And they had no evidence of this kid being intoxicated. So no one wanted this case. We took it. And we won at trial. We got a $2.5 million verdict. And we got, in Colorado, it's a 50-50 state. So they put some blame on our guy, obviously. Um, but um, we only had him put up 45%. So we won. And it was, uh, it was great for the family. The mom is a very devout Muslim. They were just wonderful people. They would invite us into their house during the, the month of Ramadan while they're fasting, and they're cooking us all these like great meals, me and my law partner, just wonderful people. And she didn't want me to ask for any money in closing because to her, Gafar, her son, was looking down in heaven, and she didn't want him to hear that we were putting a price on his life. And so we didn't even ask for money. You know, we asked for money, but we didn't put a dollar amount on it. And that was like our first big trial and just like, roller coaster of emotions every morning before the trial i would watch the scene from game of thrones are you a game of thrones fan? of course so there's the my, the my favorite scene of the eight eight seasons is it eight seasons um, a lot of seasons lot. everyone always forgets about the last one right they don't like to talk about that uh, one yeah nobody uh, liked that one no way it's, how do you how do you tie up a show like that, that and that, that's what my husband said he was like there was just no good way to end right. it you're not gonna please everybody no. so anyway there's a scene between Tyrion and prince oberon the viper of dorne so Tyrion, he's a little person. He's the best character in the whole show. And he is in a dungeon because he's been arrested for allegedly killing his nephew, the king. And so his sister hates him, has always hated him. It's her son that he killed, allegedly. And he knows he won't get a fair trial. And so not a gr as great of a system of justice as we have in America. And so he demands a trial by combat. And that's where he can choose a champion to fight on his behalf. Um, and so he says, a trial by combat. He can't fight for himself. He's a little person. He'll get destroyed. Um, not that little people can't fight, but in this particular character, he would not win because he was facing the mountain, right? Sir Gregor Clegane, who's the biggest guy, the scariest guy in all of Westeros. And so Tyrion is rotting in this dungeon, and the Viper of Dorne shows up. And the Viper of Dorne is a very enigmatic character. Uh, he hates Tyrion and his whole family, the Lannisters, because he believes that Tyrion's dad had his had the Prince of Vi the Viper of Dorne's sister killed um, by none other than the Mountain. So, uh, who's the guy that Tyrion has to fight for trial by combat? And if this sounds complicated, this is like nothing. There's nothing. It's nothing. Nothing. And so, well, well, I won't get too granular on it. Maybe I already have. But Viper of Dorne shows up in Tyrion's jail cell. And Tyrion's like, well, what are you doing here? He's like, you know, this is not the first time we met. He's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, you were just a baby. And uh, he's like, well, I don't remember. He's like, yeah, he's like, your sister, she told us that there was, uh, she had a brother and he was a monster with one red eye and a claw. And he killed my mother, she killed my mother when he was born and I want him to die. And so he's like, we were all excited to see this monster of a baby. And Cersei and Jamie, your brother, took us over there and they opened up the crib and unveiled the monster. But you were not a monster, you were just a baby. 
your head was a bit too big and your feet a bit too small, but you were just a little kid. Uh, and then he's like, and Tyrion's like crying. He doesn't know about the story. And like, seriously, he's doing terrible things to him as a baby. And, and he's like, he's like, and I want some justice. And Tyrion's like, well, if you want justice, you've come to the wrong place. And he's like, I disagree. And he wanted to, what he really wanted was to fight the mountain. And so this was an opportunity. And he's like, Tyrion, I will be your champion. And this was like overwhelming for Tyrion because he's about to die and no one's going to fight for him. And the Viper of Dorne is like this, this renowned fighter in all of Westeros. If anyone can defeat the mountain, maybe it's him. And he comes to Tyrion's side and to rescue him and he will be his champion and will fight for him when he can't fight for himself. And that's what we do. As lawyers, as trial lawyers, we have these injured clients that cannot fight for themselves, and they need a champion who's skilled, who is dangerous, who is confident, who is unafraid to go in and take on these giant corporations uh, the, and, and take them down. And so that's what we are to our clients. We are their champion. And this mother, this Iraqi mother, I knew I had to be her champion. So I'd watch it every morning before trial, and it would motivate me to get through it and to go kick some ass. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. So I have a sign in my, my office. I will be your champion, etched in like wood and like old Game of Thrones lettering. You know, I got swords everywhere. You know, it's a, I'm, it's an important lesson. I think we're talking about your listeners and people want to be trial lawyers. Like, you got to be authentic. You got to be you. That's the most important thing. Whether you're in front of a jury, meeting a client, wherever you are, just always be you. So number one, find out who you are. I think that's really important. It's hard to do sometimes, but then like. Don't try and be, you know, Nick Rowley. Don't try and be, uh, you know, John Romano and Mark Lanier. Just be the best you. And if you can be you, and I feel like I live my authenticity and it's a bit much, you know, here I am in sandals and I got a sword on my lapel and I got, you know, a ring of a Bushido and a, and a Renaissance cross. But that's who I am. And uh, I don't worry about what others will think. I tone it down a little bit for trial. But being and knowing your authentic self, I think, is how you can really do a great service for your clients and succeed as a trial lawyer because that's that's what people crave they crave authenticity and and, and i had a speech this morning and i was like raise your hand in this room if you like lawyers it's like put your hands down you're lying nobody likes lawyers what we have to be as humans not lawyers lawyers are one of the most despised profession and sometimes for good reason they don't understand what we do we do our kind of lawyer does one of the greatest things i think you can do in being other people's champion but we got to be humans i can't we can't be lawyers I don't know you very well, but if I were to guess, I think you are very much you. Like, I have never gotten the sense that, I, that you're not you. You are very much you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I can see that yeah. for sure. We, we all have to be ourselves. So that's, that, that's a good starting point. But other verdicts, you said, what else, what else can I tell you about? Our biggest verdict was a $16 million verdict. Um, that was the largest uh, premises liability verdict in Colorado history. Wow, congrats. Um, so that's good. And, you know, it's a big number. It's a ginormous number. We're looking for a bigger one this summer. I'm sure um, you are. I but, don't doubt it. Uh, but it was, um, it, was a really, it was a really sad case. I've become very familiar with something called complex regional pain syndrome and also electrocution cases. That's what happened here. Our client was installing a floor at a house that was being built and the flooring installers kind of come last right before the electricians come in. So they have to get power from a temporary power box. It's outside the house. It's called a temporary pedestal. And he went to plug in his machine and it exploded. Oh my God. And no one really knows what happened uh, because the company after the exploded the temporary pedestal uh, and they knew that Brian was injured, they threw the box away. 
they threw the temporary pedestal away. So we had no evidence, um, which was challenging, so challenging that the lawyer that had the case before us withdrew two months before the statute ran. And so Brian comes to us with no lawyer, and he's got what's called complex regional pain syndrome, and I knew nothing about it, but he was a sweetheart of a kid, not a kid, he was 33 at the time, three long, young boys of his own, and he was just, you know, he's like, I can't, I can't throw a ball with my kids anymore. And Aww. you know, I grew up playing baseball. This is like my thing. I can't wrestle with them. It's the little things. It's, it's the little things, you know, that you know, I have three boys of my own. I didn't at the time, and but now it even hits it even hits harder. And so I said, Brian, we're gonna find a way to win. And we did. We did. We did all this crazy briefing and we got a, a spoliation sanction. Uh, and so that means when you destroy evidence, right? And when they shouldn't. And so we got the judge to issue an order, which is she gave us a rebuttable presumption of causation and liability, meaning the jury had to assume that because Excel destroyed the box and then lied about how they destroyed it, um, the jury has to give them at least 1% fault for creating a dangerous box and for causing his injuries. Now, they had all their defenses left to them. They blamed Brian for going in there and doing something to the box that caused an explosion. They said he wasn't that injured. They had all their defenses. They could have won, and by the jury only assigning 1% blame to them and 99% to Brian, um, but we convinced them otherwise, and uh, the jury came back with a $16 million verdict. The jury was so kind and fell so in love with Brian that I literally got a call like a month later from one of the jurors. She looked me up, and she's like, is Brian getting that money because he needs it? And did we give him enough? Oh, my God. And it was like, I mean, they, they, they love this kid, uh, this guy. I mean, kid. that's kiddish. You know, I was like, so it was just, um, this was just life change for him. We ended up, they appealed it. We went to the Court of Appeals. I no. Got, oh, yeah. I got to argue in front of the Court of Appeals, um, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, unfortunately, it was during COVID, so it was just, you know, on, on, on Zoom. But we got a 60-page published opinion. It's now the seminal case in Colorado on spoliation and what you can do to a party if they destroy evidence when they shouldn't. And so there's right off into the sunset kind of thing. Brian still has CRPS, obviously, so it's, he's not riding off into the sunset for him. But life is more comfortable for him now. Um, and there's this, there's this great moment. Can I, can I give you one trial story from there? Yeah, go, I, keep going. I think it's really – I think it's, it's – Probably the best trial story I've ever told. I'm sure I've heard better ones. Anyway, here's what's going on. They destroyed this box, as I said, the box, the electrical box, and they kept lying to everyone. They told different people at different times that they destroyed it at different times. And how they destroyed it, they also told different stories. I called it a moving fiction. Depending on who was asking, they would change their story. Hey, where are the workers' comp folks? Do you have that box? Yeah, we got it in the back. Okay. Three months later, someone else asked for the box. Oh, we threw that out months and months and months ago. And then we get to court and they're like, we destroyed it six months afterwards pursuant to our company policy, which didn't exist. So usually like for a spoliation sanction, you have to show the court they destroyed it when litigation was reasonably foreseeable. So usually you know when they've destroyed it. But because they kept lying about it, we don't know when they destroyed it. So the analysis was very difficult to do. So we get to trial. Do you think that that was intentional? Or do you think they're just idiots? In my heart of hearts? Yes. I think that was intentional. Wow. They knew it injured somebody. They knew that it was melted, so it was a really severe explosion, and they didn't want to get in trouble for it. So you think they destroyed it right away and they just kept lying about it? Yeah. And we had audio from like when workers' comp called them, and he just sounds like he's lying. Well, I think it's back there somewhere. And it just seems really shady. So the court punished them more for lying than for destroying it. 
um, because we couldn't figure out when they destroyed it. So we get to court. Here's the story. And an opening statement is a big deal, obviously, when they destroyed it. And the lawyer gets up and she's like, the reason that this box was destroyed in 2018 was because their father had just passed away. It was a family business, the defense. Um, and their father was the patriarch of the company. And so it was difficult times. He was in hospice. And he what does that have to do with the box being destroyed? Because that's why they couldn't remember exactly when they destroyed it because it was right when the father died. And so that's why they got confused in telling different people different stories because it was just a difficult time of grieving for them that clouded their ability to remember and what they were doing. Okay. It's not bad. It's not good. You know, it's, it, as a human, you sympathize. You're like, well, well, absolutely. That's, I mean, you, that, you know, that sucks. But I can't imagine. Well, here's the problem. Uh, Sarah, who was trying the case with me, Sarah McCarran, she's like, you know, I'm going to take a look into this. And lo and behold, she goes and looks at the uh, obituaries in the local paper and the, finds a coroner report. And the father didn't die the year of the explosion. He died a year before the explosion. So that was... I, mean, I also feel like that's just like bad karma. It's bad karma. So like we, to use your father's death to... And to... I mean, they're lying. I mean, that was like... So was everything they were doing, like their judgment was, I mean, I don't know. Like, right. where do you draw the line? You lose all credibility. When you're going to lie about that, you, you, know, you lie about anything. I mean, one of the most like you know, intimate, you know, tragic things that can happen in your life. And so we go to court and, you know, they say it's an opening statement. And then we have a whole strategy pinned out what we're going to do. And, uh, of course, the, the defendants get up and they're like, but our father died. And that's why I go, I know. I know you're, I heard that in opening. I'm sure your lawyer is going to want to ask about that. I, I'm not really that interested in right now. Because what we wanted to do was we wanted to end that witness's testimony with this line of questions. And I knew that the other lawyer would bring it up. So we call him in our case in chief and cross-examine him. Then they call him and then we get to go after that. It's kind of like a redirect, recross. And then the judge doesn't allow anything after that, which is great. So the guy, so when, when he goes up, when, when their lawyer goes up and asks him about the father, of course, he like lays it on thick. And then I come back up like, all right, you know, Mr. Heil, I just, I just have a, a, one more line of questions. It's about your father. I heard about him again here during your testimony. I know it must be difficult. Do I have your permission to ask you what happened and about your father? Yes, sir. I understand. Of course you do. Thanks. I have a job to do. I understand. I said, now you testified that he passed away in 2018, and that's why everything was so clouded, and you can't remember when you destroyed it. That's right. That's right. Uh, your Honor, may I approach? Uh, yes, you may. I don't know if I did this right even. I was like so nervous. I was so excited. So we had these, these two documents, and like I go, I like to approach the witness, and I go, I have these two documents, sir, and I go back and I grab both documents and like my whole team knows we're all waiting for this right we're gonna drop this bomb everyone's like ooh, pins and needles the tech guys laughing well how's it gonna play out tech guys over there whispering to somebody else defense counsel's like what's he doing these aren't marked exhibits what's happening and I can see him out of the corner of my eye scoping me out and so I walk up to the witness I said and that your father passed away in 2018 that's right that's right sir I go the problem I have Mr. Heil is that I have the obituary from the Boulder Daily Camera in the coroner's report that showed that this happened and your father passed away a year prior to the explosion. And I slid the paper across the table and there was silence in the room. He looks down at the paper. He looks up at me, confused. He looks down at the paper. He looks up at his lawyer, starting to panic. He looks down at the paper. He looks back at me. He goes, that's absolutely right. And I was like, no further questions, your honor. He starts, the witness is like, but wait, your honor, I want to, she goes, there are no questions pending, sir. Go back to your counsel's table. He walks back. I walk back. They, <laughs> they offer the full policy limits later that day, $3 million. But, but I don't get it. Like, 
I'm like very confused because like, what do they think that you weren't going to check? I know. I know. Well, I don't think, I don't think the defense lawyer knew. I think that she felt betrayed by her client for lying to her. But even the client, like you would think like, but I guess people just. They just assume. Yeah. We, we, and, and so, you know, this was in 2018, and I was like, in closing, I was like, look, we live in a in, in a post a post truth world. You know, everyone has their own truth now, and, and you know, it's like facts still matter in the courtroom. You know, you can't just say what you want and pretend that's true. And that's why lawyers are here to hold people accountable. That's why juries are here to hold corporations accountable. And that's what, sorry, so let's go back. But, and that was the end of, like, that was it. That was no, the last no, no, question that, that, or that, that was, was the, more? That was the last question for that witness. And then he was done. And they never called him in their case in chief. They just, I mean, if you, That's so really great. That's where it ended. That's where it ended. And well, then we had, we, then we had a few more witnesses the next week, but that was- But the, for the, him, yes. he didn't get to say anything else. Never came back on the And stand. you did it strategically. Like, I'm not going to ask about it until I know they bring it up. Then I- that's that was cool. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think uh, you know between you, me, and the listeners, uh, I think the uh, I think the lawyer kind of gave up after that. I think she felt really betrayed by the client, um, and she later on remarked to me, "She's like, you know, it's a pretty cool Matlock moment you had there." No, that is really really cool. <laughs> so that was a bit. That was a fun one. We had another electrocution case. Um, we kind of developed this niche for electrocutions and CRPS because they. But how do you get these cases? So the second one we got was because they heard about this first one. Um, so they really like started researching. They started researching and they're like, hey, uh, it was like a week after the trial. I was like, I got this electrocution CRPS case, Kurt, and maybe you could help me with it. I gave him some tips, you know, and then a year later, he's like, we got to file the case, you know. I, Wait, what is it called? CRPS? CRPS. So it's Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. Do you have a page on your website about this? I do. I do. People call it CRIPS. Um, it's it's really, it's it's terrible what happens is you have an autonomic nervous system we talked about that earlier yeah and that carries sensations like cold and heat and fight or flight it just happens it regulates all you know without your any thought it's subconscious what happens when you get crps is for some reason it starts carrying pain signals all the time and then it starts spreading to the other limbs and in really bad cases of crps your extremities can turn blue um, and so the worst symptoms of CRPS are something called allodynia. That's where like something that shouldn't cause any pain causes immense pain. Like people with bad CRPS can't take showers. They can't sleep with any bed sheets on them because the slightest touch causes severe pain. And there's no cure? There's no cure. Any medicine for symptoms? No. no. So what they do is they, they can do injections of ketamine and other pain meds. And if they do it early enough, the hope is that it will it will stop it and, re- and reverse it or at least stop it from spreading. That doesn't usually happen. So then they can do more injections just for relief, but it only lasts so long. Our client got 53 injections before the doctor's like, okay, we can't, we can't give you any more. The only solutions, and they're not solutions, are ketamine infusions, right? Where you go into the hospital for six hours at a time and they infuse ketamine into you. The downside is you may have uh, a break with reality and suffer a psychosis because it's a hallucinogenic. So it's not a perfect cure. Or neurostimulators. They put into your spine to help distract you from the pain. But there is no... I've had clients amputate their legs. I mean, this is um, awful. It's one of the because worst... Because it's just like... I mean, anytime I've ever had any sort of pain, I'm like, I am so happy that I don't live with this because right. it like completely changes your perception of life. That's exactly right. Like a, Like... Even just like a cold, I'm like, and I, this is something I actually think about when I'm sick. I'm like, nothing, like we take it for granted. We're always like, oh, health comes first. But like, it really truly comes first because you can't function if you don't feel well. Exactly. I can't imagine pain randomly all the time 
for no like good reason. No, no, no triggers. Nothing you can predict. It's just keep. I think, and and what happens is it's like you ever go hiking on a trail, mm-hmm. right? So trails that have been well hiked, the grooves in the trail get deeper and deeper, and so that's what happens with CRPS along your nervous system. Is as the pain keeps going, it creates a groove and a trail, so that like it starts to go all the time now. There's less resistance, so the pain keeps. Could shooting. it kill you? It doesn't kill you. Um, it just makes your life miserable. Um, yeah, living uh, hell. Are you th- kidding? There's all this, you know, one of my clients amputated his leg, um, different from these two clients, and some doctors recommend that, some doctors don't. That 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 client has now had to amputate up above the knee now because it's just gotten worse. I mean, there's there's no good solution for it. And not a lot of lawyers understand it. Not a lot of, not a lot of doctors understand it. It used to be called um, like RS... RSV, RSD, um, and now they now they call it CRPS or CRPS one, CRPS two. There's objective tests that you now have for it, which are important because defense lawyers like to say, ah, the person's crazy, it's all in their head. But now we've got they do like sweat tests because it's a heat thing, and, and, and they do thermal imaging. And it's and it's electrocution that causes it. Electrocution is one of the causes. I mean, you can I don't want to freak you out. You can get it from like you know, rolling your ankle. Um, what? Yeah, yeah. Every time I get hurt, I'm like, oh, but it's, I mean, it can be something benign um, that you wouldn't think would cause something terrible. Okay, wait. So now I have, I have another question for you. Of course. I feel like every time I see you, you're doing something kind of crazy, like a cold plunge or karaoke, but like you go all out when you do karaoke. I do go all out when I do karaoke. I'm not, you know, it's hard to get me up there. I, I think someone put my name in there and it got me up there. Um, <laughs> but then it's like anything else. Like once you're on stage, for me, and you know, for everybody, like then I really like. I've always wanted to be a rock star. Really? Maybe, maybe you saw this. I'm not a great singer. The great thing about live karaoke is that you got backup singers that can help you out a little bit and drown out your voice if you're having. But you're a stuff. performer. I'm a performer. You know, I feel like I used to watch. You ever watch this show? I don't know if you're old enough for it. It was, um, it was not American Idol, but like rock star. Like NXS was looking for a new lead singer. I'm sure and, I'm and, old uh, enough for it, yeah. but I've never watched it. And it was like they were all rockers and they were like performing, and I was like, I love that show. And so if I could do anything in the world, it would be. Probably in this order, rock star, professional athlete, number one and number two. I can't do either of those. But in live karaoke, for those like three minutes, it's like a make a wish thing. I can be that rock star. And so when you did the karaoke, someone I think on your team told me that you uh, did drama at some point, like acting. I did do acting. I did do acting. Do you think that that's helped you as a trial lawyer? I do. You know, it, it, part of it is like a chicken or the egg thing, right? Like, was I always a performer and then I wanted to do acting because I like performing or did doing mm. acting help me become a better performer? You know, probably a little bit of both. Like I always had this, this, this inclination to want to perform. I think it's because my theory is it because I'm a little brother. And so I was always trying to get attention, you know, look yeah. at me, look at me, look at me. And, and so, and I think maybe I should do a study on this, see if little brothers are generally actors. Well, you know, what's funny. My, my middle son, so he has a sister, but he has an older brother He's like a little comedian. Yeah. And I feel it's because he can't get a word in. Right. right. So I think it makes perfect sense. I mean, there's something here that we should write a paper on this, <laughs> you know? Um, so I went to LA. So I did I did theater in college. Um, I wasn't a theater major, but I took a lot of theater classes. I did some plays. I did some scene work. And then I moved to LA to be a movie star, of course, after undergrad. My parents were not in favor of this. They thought I was crazy. Um, and I went out there and I did not become a movie star. I was waiting to see if I got into different law schools. But I, you know, I made some, I accomplished some big things. Like I got a job as a bartender, which is a big deal in LA. <laughs> That's hard because everyone's trying to do it. Um, I got into an acting class. 
<laughs> big deal. It was a big acting class. And here's the thing. You can't just sign up for an acting class in LA. You have to like audition to get into an acting class. My best friend's an actress, so I've lived yeah. through it all. Yeah. So I did it for like maybe a year, nine months. And I was like, yeah, you know what? Acting's cool. But I came at this epiphany where like I wanted, I didn't want to be the the actor that played these characters. Like I love movies. I've always loved movies. They inspire me. What's your favorite me. movie? Gladiator, Braveheart, depending on the day. Okay. You throw Legends of the Fall in there. Maybe The Edge is a big one up there. You know, it's hard to pick just one. Love Kingdom of Heaven, the director's cut. Um, <laughs> the but, director's cut. Yeah, the, the original. They, they made Ridley Scott take an hour out of it. It was, it was very sad. Um, and so the movie felt incomplete. But I realized I wanted to be those. I wanted to be William Wallace. I wanted to be Maximus. I don't want to be the guy that played them. And so it seemed like it would be maybe not as meaningful as I hoped if I were able to succeed. I'm sure it'd be a lot of fun being a professional actor, but I wanted to like make a difference on my own. I wanted to be those characters that were doing impactful things for people. And as a trial lawyer, you can do that. And you get to be... So you knew like, I want to be a trial lawyer. Yes, I always, yes, I knew that. I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I wanted to, because I wanted to help people. I wanted to be in trial. That's, you know, and be the actor and the director and the screenwriter while the script is changing on the fly. I wanted to have all that. Um, and you think your passion for like performing helped you like maybe not be as scared to be in front of a jury? I think so. I still get scared. But um, I get scared, right? It's probably, do you think that instead of scared, you're just excited? Because they say it's the same chemical. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, like it's a good scary. It's a good scare. I mean, if, if I'm not scared, I feel like I don't have the energy I need to perform. For you don't care. Or you don't, yeah, if you know, you don't care. Exactly right. So I and so doing the acting classes like did it help me? Yeah, yes, but like we're not acting up there. I feel like a question I always get: Is your acting help? Acting classes help you figure out how to emote and how to be comfortable in who you are. But when you get in front of a jury, I'm not pretending. I'm not acting that like I, I like my client and I start crying because I'm doing some method acting. Think about a sad day when I was a little kid and I'm crying because of that. No, like I'm crying because I really care about my client and it helps me get in touch with my emotions and it gives me more confidence to come out of my shell and really be the way I want to be. It's like, like everyone, if they're alone in the room and there's a great song that comes on and they just want to like sing in front of the mirror, you know, like everyone has that mm -hmm. and everyone does that and the acting just helps that person come out more at trial. Interesting. I'd never heard of it put that way, but I could see how it would help you because you probably just learned to tune into emotions in front of people so now you can tune into your own emotions in front of people that's exactly right that's exactly right that's amazing that's a great skill to have and if you're a young trial lawyer or want to be a trial lawyer go take an acting class yeah i mean get comfortable in front of people this goes back to what i was saying at the very beginning of all this like being a human you got to be you you got to be authentic and then you can really emote and and be authentic and communicate because what we're doing we're communicating right i don't like people that aren't authentic yeah i think it's something you can sense either consciously or subconsciously i see it consciously i don't like it a lot of people have a mask on yeah know? especially yeah. in our space especially in our space. And I just, I'm like, mm. Which doesn't make a lot of sense because like we're supposed to be the most open. We're supposed to be the most authentic. And you go to these things and you meet all these people and you're like, that guy, that gal is a jerk, you know? There's like, a lot of ego though. It's a, it's like, and I mean, I've said this before and I, I have a client that like I interviewed the other day and he really disagrees with me. I think the ego can be good. He disagrees. But I think you need to be able to check it. 100%. You have to believe in yourself and you have to believe in yourself enough that you can be humble. And if and vulnerable. It, and, and vulnerable. Joe Frieda, this is like one of the things he talks about, right? Like 
being able to even be honest with, you know, the jury about, you know, whatever it might be. I tell them all the time, I'm nervous, I'm scared, I'm not confident that I'm going to be able to tell my client's story the way it deserves to be told. So 100%. The last thing I want to talk about is Kempo. Uh, I've gotten really into... What's that? Um, it's a martial art. Uh, uh-huh. It's like a mixture of karate and... Um, <laughs> Or as my five-year-old calls it, karate and um, and and uh, kung fu and a little bit of jujitsu in there. It's from Hawaii. Wow! And, and so I've been doing it for about two, three years now, and it's like I do it one hour a week, or maybe a little more sometimes. It's the best hour of my week. And my two my two oldest kids, they're not very old, seven and five, they do it too. And we, uh, I've learned how to use the bow staff. I learned how to use the spear now. I'm training with that weapon. And I had to do all these like katas, which is like a martial arts form, and these pinyons, which are like uh, kung fu forms. And like, I put the phone away, I strap on my gi, I hang out with my sensei, and I learn how to kick some ass. And like, as a little kid, I always wanted to be like a karate master. And really? It's never too late to do what you've always wanted to do. And so now like, you know, all the people at the office, I bring in my bow staff and I'm throwing it around and I'm practicing and I hit the wall and I break things on people's desks. And like, it just, it's so much fun. And it's like, again, this whole like theme of like being a warrior and someone's champion and learning how to do these things I've always wanted to do. And just taking that discipline and, and, and that, that intellectual dive into the art of it, it's just... I'm just loving it. And at 43 years old, it's, I'm so glad I've been able to share this with my children. And they're the ones that got me into it. They started it. Oh, my, really? My wife like took them to some dojo. And I'm like, that's great. And then I started watching. I'm like, well, it'd be cool if I could like help teach them as well and like learn with them. And so now we all do it together. Dojo. Dojo, dojo is where you learn martial arts. Huh. Yeah. I'm going to look into this. So my kids did jujitsu for two years. And they, we were in Mexico at the time. And they had a private trainer that would come to them. And they loved it. They were getting so good at it. And then we moved and we haven't like... We're getting back into it. They loved it so much. It was like one thing that we were so grateful for because this was during COVID. Yeah. Everything was shut down. And this was like one thing that they did a couple times a week that they just like... It was such a good outlet. Jiu-jitsu is great. My, we have friends that do it. My kids, they do the Kempo. They also do wrestling. And wrestling's a lot like jiu-jitsu. It's like such good physical activity. Um, yeah. I mean, my, my kids have changed my life. That's probably one of the other hardest things about being a trial lawyer is finding time to be dad you know yeah, I love that being, must be tough i love being dad i mean that dad's more important to me than being a trial lawyer and um i want to be home for dinner every night i want to coach their activities i want to do things with them and it's like this most stressful thing about being a lawyer isn't the work it's finding the time to do the work you know like i need chunks of time to do writing and prepare for depots and like those are hard to come by especially if you want to be there for breakfast and for dinner and and look i'm not perfect i i fall short i don't do everything i aim to do um, I'm not always there for breakfast. I'm not always there for dinner. You know, I, I don't. I miss some of their games. I'm here now at this at this seminar. I'm going to miss stuff tomorrow. I'm going to fly home tomorrow morning, but I'm going to miss a couple games. Like you can't be everywhere all the time. Just got to make sure you're there enough, and that when you're there, you're very very present, which is also a challenge because you got all these. Such a big challenge. I struggle with that. Yeah, a lot. it's so hard. I mean, I'm not, I'm not just like the phone distraction, just like worrying about all these things yep. that we have to do. You know, and they don't deserve that. You know, they they deserve more. And so we... I don't cry. Don't say that. <laughs> I really struggle with that. I'm no. like, I live in my head. But... Um, I, th- I think I think we all do to some extent. But that was cool about karate. We get to do it together. We don't train together every every week. Um, but we have the same sensei. So we share these things together. And we go to tournament together. And, you know, this morning, the last two mornings, we were here in California. 
we don't have many beaches in Colorado. And so I was able to <laughs> kind of transitioning away from the kids, just back to just me, 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 me. Um, I would, I would run, I'm running every morning in the beach and I could practice my karate in the ocean. And I'm like, I wish they were here to do it with me. Oh. We could all do it together. Of course, they don't like doing it with dad as much as dad likes doing it with them. That's also a problem, right? You guys want to go to the dojo and do some karate? No. Mm. <laughs> Come on. And then you can't push too much, right? Because no. then they don't want to do it. Um, but I still want to do it with them. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks I for having me. I appreciate it. This was fun. This was fun. Yeah. This was fun. Um, it was great. Thanks for having me on on the podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for Kurt Zayner for everything he shared with us today. If you found this story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And leave a five-star review. It goes a long way in helping others discover the show. I'll see you guys next week. Bye.